check. If everybody could please find their seats. That would be great. Well, welcome to our Sunday School series, this month-long series on 1 Corinthians. Last week, we looked at an overview of the book, and I tried to give a way of studying a, a Bible book in depth. And I told you that what I postulated was that the theme of 1 Corinthians is Christian unity. Paul talks a lot about this diversity in unity, or unity in diversity. If we could please find our seats... All right, uh, so in Corinth, there was a big problem of lots of divisions, lots of factions. They had, they had their hero worship of Paul and Cephas and Apollos or Christ, and they didn't quite care about the, the growth of the body, the upbuilding of the body, loving one another. And so Paul is taking them to task and showing them a better way, encapsulated in the chapter 13, the famous love chapter. And so one thing that comes out in the book is that Paul is defending himself as an apostle and the role of apostles in general. And we're going to see that very clearly in chapter 9. Um, and ultimately, we're going to get to the verse on how we pay our pastor. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, you know, you're not pastors, most of you, as far as I know. Do you really care? Well, it, it's, it's in the Bible, so we care. Paul wasn't afraid to talk about it. I did specifically ask for a week that Tim wasn't here so he wouldn't feel too uh, uncomfortable. But to be honest, he should be able to teach this as well as me. We're just teaching God's word, right? Well, we, you know, he's getting up there in age. He's not looking too good. So we might have a pastoral committee one of these days. We might need to start thinking about this a little bit. He's going to come back from Scotland wearing a kilt, ready to go back to the homeland. So we just have to be ready for this. But seriously, I think by looking at this, I'm, I'm also going I'm, I'm to, I'm, I'm kind of coming at this at an angle. What I'm really getting at isn't the question I'm asking. I think if you really sat down and tried to answer this question, you're going to go to a bunch of biblical principles, and it's going to start to open up things that I think are primary for us. Particularly, what is our role in the body? What is the local church all about? So by looking at the role of the pastor and the elders, uh, and thinking about supporting them, we start thinking about what is the mission of the church and why, why God would say these types of things. So that's what I'm really after. Now, in our lives, this is a very personal subject. We have many family members who are involved in the ministry, multiple pastors in our family. My daughter, Katrin, is now an intern living on support. Um, we have missionaries that we've supported for years. Um, all, we have assistant pastors. We, ha we have the gambit. And it's very interesting in our personal conversations, this is a topic they don't want to talk about, uh, th they don't even want to think about, to be honest. They just want to get on with their calling. And yet, in my personal experience, despite what you might see from televangelists who have private jets and the world thinks we're just a bunch of money hoarders, my personal experience, we tend to underpay rather than overpay uh, ministers, I'll call them. People who support or, or rely on support Two of my highlights this summer when I was in Wales was to see my brother-in-law just finish his, he's 66, he just finished a, a lifetime of, of being a pastor. And he's looking at that next stage. He's not going to fully retire. He can't afford to. He's going to look at itinerant preaching and working with a theological college and piece things together. 
And it's an exciting time, a new time for them. But, but just as I was there at the start in 1998 of the, his latest pastorate and there at the end, so it was very special. Also, got to visit some missionaries we've supported for over 20 years. And it's just very interesting to think about how they think about life and money. They never gave a thought to where their kids would go to college or if they could. They haven't given a thought to retirement. They're just plodding away. They work from England in Latin America. And I just, I sit there and think, wow, it's either, either the organization, people aren't doing them very well, they're dumb, or they're just super faithful. And I should be <laughs> so faithful. Is it wrong for me to sit and think about 401ks and retirement? I'm withholding money to plan for retirement that I could be given to the church. Is that a right thing? Those are the type of things that are going to swell around when you start to think about this subject. And we won't get to half of those answers today. So I do want to look at the whole chapter to put it in context. I'm going to race through the front of your handout. because that's And th there's a lot of information there. I have a lot more teacher's notes if you're interested in the subject. Really, really want to get to, uh, to is the back. And I want to have a long discussion. I've got some questions there at the end. Uh, I pray it's beneficial for us. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that we get to open every day, every week. We pray that your spirit would be with us, for without him, we would profit nothing. We pray that as we think about this subject, it wouldn't be a way to be puffed up in knowledge, but that it would be something that would truly change our lives. It would get us thinking about our own saving and spending habits, what we think about the church, what we think about pastors and elders, what we think about our own role in that church. Pray that you would impact us deeply, humble us, um, make us a little scared even, Help us to lean on your grace and be open to your calling, whatever that may be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, there's the outline of 1 Corinthians 9, and I'll just go ahead and read it, and you can kind of see how the outline follows. Am I not free? <coughs> Excuse me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we ha not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher, thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And here's really our verse. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die 
than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. All right, let's look at these points just very briefly in turn. Paul has clearly defended himself as, as an apostle. So what is an apostle? Well, again, I have two full pages of notes just on half of this slide. So uh, if you look around at the scriptures I've given you, you'll find that we often think of the apostle as the 12, right? The 12 apostles. And these 12 disciples were named apostles and they were sent out. But that's not the only way the Bible uses the word apostle. There are multiple instances where others are sent out and others are called apostles. The easiest one is just to turn to chapter 15 of our book. When Jesus died and rose again, he appeared to Cephas, Cephas, and then to the 12, then to 500 brothers at one time, then to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. So we have Jesus showing himself to the 12 and then to all the apostles. And then to Paul, and again, part of his defense is, I, Jesus showed himself to me. I'm an apostle like any of you, even though I wasn't, well, Jesus, you know, before Jesus died. So in this limited sense, it seems to me that Paul is saying that he's the last of the apostles. Right there in, in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, have I not seen Jesus, Lord? Am I not an apostle? Those are possibly two different qualifications, but it seems that he's pulling those together. There, there was a sense of being an apostle where you had to see Jesus, you had to know Jesus. And so that wasn't enough, obviously. You still were commissioned for certain service, but part of being that type of an apostle would have meant you lived 2,000 years ago, right? And that's kind of how we take it in our denomination. It's interesting that you, we saw in chapter 1 last week, you know, some follow Paul, some Cephas, and, and some... Paul says he wasn't a man of eloquent speech and wisdom. He didn't come in that sense so that the power of God, the power of the Spirit might really reign your lives. And Paulos, perhaps, or others were that type. And you could just see those, those who were not in the, the Paul camp, the, the Paul clique, he probably saw him as, you know, a traditionalist, that old fogey. He probably looked ugly, had things coming out of his eyes, we find in Galatians 4. His preaching was boring. He wasn't hip. He wasn't up with the times. You can just imagine the grumblings, the rumors going out. 
In this case, he, they could have said, you weren't even born again. The, the word there in chapter 15 of, of untimely born is, is a miscarriage. It's an abortion. You, you, you are a disgusting birth, Paul. We, we, have no, we would never follow you. You have no authority over us. But he's claiming that authority. They, God calls him in a special way. He gave, was given a special birth because he had a special calling. Remember, it was when he went to Corinth that he, just, he found out that he was going to turn from the Jews and go to the Gentiles. There was his commission to be the apostle to the Gentiles, a very unique ministry. So as God often does, he, he showed that with a unique birth. So that's the limited sense of being an apostle. But there is a broad sense that maybe we don't think about. Again, Jesus sends out lots of people that aren't of the 12 to go ahead, travel ahead of him into the towns. It's possible that Barnabas, Barnabas fits here. In Acts 4, Barnabas sells a field and brings the money to the apostles. So he's not yet numbered one of the apostles. As far as we know, he never saw Jesus, but he could have. It's very possible. He was, he was there, right, in, in Jerusalem. He could have been one of the 500. It's not that important to know. It's very po uh, possible that the way we might think of a, uh, an apostle is, is a missionary or an evangelist. As far as I know, missionary is not really a biblical term, but we've embraced it. Uh, it's also interesting to me that in 1 Corinthians 12, he goes through the list, right? There are apostles, um, prophets, teachers, you know, people who work miracles, people who speak in tongues, interpret tongues. Ephesians 4 has a very similar list, but it also includes the word evangelist. I don't know if that's a cue to us that there was some later development in church history that now we have evangelists after the time of the apostles. I, I don't know. I don't think we have to get too tied up in titles exactly, right? It's more about the function that people are commissioned, they are sent out in a special way, and they need to be supported. That's, that's the big thing. Now, you can go into lots of word studies, um, and I'll leave those to you. So again, we in the PCA tend to not use the word apostle um, because we do see that that formal initial sense is over. Um, and maybe we don't want to use the word apostle for a missionary now because it, maybe it's confusing. I don't know. But uh, if someone was using it in that very broad sense, I wouldn't have a problem. The word apostle means to be sent out or to carry a message. Oh, wrong way. The other thing we see is that the Corinthians had a really distorted view of what it meant to be an apostle. They're, you know, these apostles, they don't work for a living. They're just living loosely. There's no accountability. I don't know. You can just imagine the way you might think of people, right, who aren't like you, who claim a special privilege, who claim authority over you. We always like to kick against that, right? We see throughout the book that they were a place of special honor. God has appointed the church first apostles. It's the first office given. And Paul even makes that claim in chapter 14. The things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Right? As an apostle, he has an authority that's unique. And he's imposing it upon them. He can say that the word I'm giving you is a command of the Lord. They bore great responsibilities. They're stewards of the mysteries of God. And he talks there in chapter 4, I, I don't care about what you think of me. God's watching me. <laughs> that's the, all, all the accountability I need. I have a great responsibility, I have a great stewardship, and I will give an account for what I have done with that stewardship. And they endured great suffering. He says they were like men sentenced to death. I'd encourage you to read that whole passage in chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians 11. Just the things that Paul endured. You, you want to despise him? You want to be like him? Like, you don't want this life, I promise you. 
All right, and then uh, in the second section there, we see that he starts to defend his rights. What is he free to do? He just finished chapter 8. He talked about eating food offered to idols. Back in chapter 7, he made the claim that anyone can marry only in the Lord. And now, now this is really the subject. This number 3 and 4 is what we're going to talk about today. He has the right, the apostles have the right to refrain from working outside of gospel labors, to refrain from working for a living. And obviously, tied in with that, that means they need to be paid for their labor. So we're going to talk, that's what we're really going to dive into today. Where am I going here? One of these days I'm going to learn that what button does what. All right. Then we see Paul uses his freedom for gospel effectiveness, and he does this in, in two ways. Uh, first of all, he just said, which I find a little odd, God has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should live by the gospel. And then he says, I'm not going to do that. It almost sounds like Paul is being disobedient <laughs> to me. So how do I take that? Well, I kind of take that command as to the church. You, church, are commanded to support your pastor to those who proclaim the gospel to you. But Paul's not going to wait for that. And it kind of makes sense in a brand new church. Maybe if you're church planning somewhere and you're, you're trying to preach the gospel and get people in, it, it kind of makes sense there's not going to be a lot of support up front. Okay. But, but a mature church, that's the goal that a church should be going. The idea of a bivocational ministry, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I can see why people do that. It seems clear to me that's not what's supposed to happen. Notice that Paul wasn't a bivocational worker. He was a full-time tent maker to support himself. And with his few hours left, he, he, instead of going to sleep in the afternoon like that culture would have, he's out preaching the gospel. This guy's working two full-time jobs. Might, might tell you a little bit why he thinks you should be single, right, back in chapter 7. That's, that's tough work to do. So he, he has the freedom to give up his rights. That's the point. He has this right. He has this claim. He could make this claim. He's choosing, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work because I can see in wisdom he thinks that would be an obstacle for the gospel. And in the end, that's what's going to win. What is the best, what is the most effective for the gospel? That's where I'm going to go, right? Remember, he's going to go to Ephesus for a long time because a wide door for effective work is open to me. We saw that last week. The other thing he's going to show his freedom for in in the things that he can do. He can eat. He can drink. He can do things that were against the old, you know, Mosaic law. Uh, he can do things that other Christians might find uncomfortable. But what's going to guide him is not a, a waiving of his rights, a defending of his freedom. It's going to be gospel, gospel, gospel. If, if I'm going to refrain from eating meat, it's going to be for the gospel. If I'm going to enjoy meat so I can be in a Gentile home and share the gospel, that's what I'm going to do. I am aware of what my brothers might think. I'm not going to flaunt it. I'm going to be careful. But ultimately, he's, he's making some judgment calls, right? He preaches so much about circumcision, and yet then he had Timothy get circumcised, right? There's, again, what is driving him. He's asking for God's wisdom. What is effective for the gospel? And may I walk with God and by his grace to do those things. All right. And run the race with distance and focus. We won't look at that one. So that's the structure we're going to look at. Now we're really going to get into our study. Okay, so great. I've I've, uh, I have uh, defended apostles getting paid for proclaiming the word. Let me, let me defend also that this applies to elders in general. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So it's very clear to me, I, I think the double honor is equivalent to being paid, but it at least includes that for at least three reasons. Earlier in that chapter, he's talking about honoring widows, and then he talks about the rules that would govern how we pay widows. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 25 again, shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That brings us back to 1 Corinthians 9, right? Which is clearly about being paid. And then he quotes from Luke 10. That's when Jesus sent out the 72. He said, don't take a, un a tunic with you. Don't take a money bag with you. A laborer is worthy of his wages. They are going out with no expectation, no human expectation for payment. And, but with a real expectation that God's going to provide that they will be paid along their labors. They're taking no money with them. Quite an act of faith. We see that all elders rule, but some labor in preaching and teaching. Those who know, in the PCA, we see two types of elders, ruling elders and teaching elders, and that, that's kind of your proof text right there. And he says that they're worthy of double honor. So uh, not only is it acceptable, I almost think it might be expected <laughs> that you would have ruling elders as part of your church staff, as part of paid. My brother-in-law is, is a ruling elder in Wales, and he has so many days a week that the church pays so that his time can be freed up. To, he does teach every couple months, but mainly he's involved with visitation, administration in the church, um, lots of counseling. Um, so, and I, we saw this also in Enid. We, had, we were in a huge church, so they had lots of resources. They had seven full-time pastors, and only one of them was, I heard much on a Sunday. One of them led young people, young what, a youth group, so there was some teaching involved, but they, they saw that all pastors, all elders are worthy of double honor. They didn't use the word elder, they used pastor because the churches in that area had a lot of heavy shepherding, and so they decided not to use the word elder because lots of people who came to the church um, saw the word elder in the wrong way. I would have preferred to just correct their they're thinking, but I understood they're hard at it. Okay, so now I've defended uh, apostles and elders. What about pastors? We're not going to go there, but 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, quite clear to me that in, in Paul's thinking and Peter's thinking, the office of elder and pastor or shepherd and overseer or bishop are the same office. There's no difference the way he's using them. Peter tells the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Paul himself in Acts 20, he called the elders when he was in Miletus from Ephesus and says, shepherd the flock of God. So purely biblical language-wise, I think we can say those are the exact same office. Now, we use those terms a little differently, and that's fine. You know, we've created organizational senior pastors, associate pastors, assistant pastors, assistants to the regional pastors, whatever. Right, we, we use wisdom to know how to organize and structure, which is completely fine. Again, the point is to have effective leadership that are in a team working together. So that's my defense. When we go back to 1 Corinthians 9, we can apply all of this to, what, and I'll just use the general term of a pastor. So basically a, a, an elder that is being paid by the church in some capacity. I'm way behind on my time, so. All right. I'm not going to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, but if, we're gonna, if the church is going to have resources to pay someone, clearly that has to get the resources, right? That's kind of obvious. Well, we could do a nice study in 1 Corinthians 16 and elsewhere on 
what is, what is our individual giving supposed to be in general for the gospel? I think there are some clear three principles there uh, in verse 2 alone. Our giving is supposed to be ex- is expected. He says when. When you come together, you will do this. Uh, regular, so it's on the first day of every week. And it's proportional. It's relative to what you have as God may bless you. You'll see, notice today in church when we're doing our giving on the screen, in our bulletin, it says, we believe that giving is a part of our worship. It's not something in addition. We find this as part of our regular worship in our church. And the bottom line is, he says there in chapter 9, wh- when people sow spiritual seed, it's okay to expect some kind of a mer- material return. Romans 15 says the exact same thing. And so that, that, that should blow our minds. Somehow the spiritual results in material. 1 John 3, right? If, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother need and does not give him what he needs, the love of God does not abide in him. There, uh, I can get some sense of your spiritual state to see how you use your material goods, to see you, how you use your time, or in, in Paul language, to see how you use your body. I get a sense. I don't have a perfect sense, but I can make some kind of determination how you're doing, and that could be some kind of barometer for your own lives as well. All right, the world's going to be worried about, we're handing, handing a guy this money, and he just kind of has his own thing. He sits away in this big building or at home and does his thing. How is he doing his time? Well, we want to look for the right type of people, right? So I won't go through all this, but you can see there the integrity, the character of Paul. He has this right. He's willing to give it up. You can see a man that, whose heart is for the gospel. He says, I'd rather die than for you to give up take away the, th- the ground on which I boast. I'm going to preach no matter what. I'm going to go, if I have to be a tent maker, I'll be a tent maker. If, if I'm going to die poor, I'm going to die poor. I'm going because it's in my bones. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach. That's the kind of guy you want in that pulpit. Even though it is his right that we give, I kind of don't want him to think about that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the weird thing. I want, I, want to, I want to call someone who doesn't care about these things and in the end bless him beyond, beyond hope for what they need. We see in the qualifications for elder, someone who is not a lover of money, not greedy for shameful gain, not under compulsion, but serves and shepherds willingly. That's the type of person you want. And of course, I would say that a plurality of elders is a huge help in this. We had a pastor once um, who was technically a missionary, but was in a local church because it was overseas. And I really struggled because I don't know what this guy did with his time. There were no elders. Um, I, I felt I was, he preached once a week, and that's it as far as I know. I was doing the weekly Bible study. We were all there at Awana. We were, you know, it was hard. And, and then I'd hear, I'd, I'd listen to him about the hardships of his life and his schedule, and I'm just thinking, I'm working 60 hours a week here and leading a Bible study, preaching every couple months. It was hard, and that <laughs> it, I had to really pray for God's, uh, you know, work in my heart, but there was no accountability there. So there needs to be some kind of accountability because we're all, we're all weak. You put me in that position where no one's watching, I'll abuse it. Not even trying. That'll be easy. I could easily waste my time. So... It's a plug for plurality of elders, for sure. All right, I want to get to 
our discussion. So Dave's going to have a mic. You're going to wait for him to start talking, to come to you. And we at least want to start with my questions. This is not open mic time yet. We have time. If you're smart enough, you'll weave the comments and questions you have right now into an answer, and then you kind of get a twofer. So I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to deal with those first two of us initially. Should we think of being a pastor as an employment or a calling? Now, I just told you what kind of man we want, right? One who is called. Well, let me give you some thoughts. So before you just say, well, it's obviously calling. Well, preachers are compared to soldiers and farmers and goat herders, to plowmen and threshers, to those who are employed in temple service. We saw again in Luke 10, a labor is worthy of his wages. That all sounds like employees to me. So think about that. The second one is, is kind of similar if you think about it. Should a pastor be paid what he is worth or what he needs? We just said that all elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So there's some kind of worthiness there. A lot of times what happens is a church will say, well, what kind of tasks, what kind of qualifications does this person have? What kind of education do they have? And in our society, what does that level of qualifications and experience warrant in a wage? I'm not saying you can't do that. Just realize as you do that, that sounds like employee to me, not calling and vocation. Oftentimes in Wales, it's tied to a teacher's salary, good or bad. Plus, we often, you, we usually call husbands and fathers instead of single men. So that's going to have a, a certain need, right? Should we care about that? My employer doesn't care if I'm married or not, right? I'm paid to do a job. They don't ask about my marital status. Well, maybe on my health benefits, but not, not the wage, right? They don't say, well, this is your wage if you're married, if you're not. Should we do that? In a missionary context, right? Resources are strapped. We're going to call someone over to Indonesia. Are we going to offer the same thing to a single guy as to a family of five? Is that okay? Again, is it based on the job or is it based on that need so that we can have this guy do whatever service? Those are the kind of questions. C, how much should we mimic benefit packages from the world? You know, pay increases, retirement accounts, um, parsonages, owning a house. I have a cousin um, who has been at the same church, I think about 40 years, in London. Impossible to move into London and afford something, especially if you're in your young 20s. It's just almost impossible. So it's been a great benefit. He's been in this parsonage, walking distance to the church, He's about to retire. Nothing. You know, no equity in the house. He'll live on a state pension, which is a little better there than here, but not much. So is he going to rely on inheritance? Is he rely on continued giving from people? Was he put in a bad situation? He's the kind of guy, he's the Paul kind of guy that just didn't care he's going to preach. And, I, and I, I, I assume that church has actually given quite a bit. They're, they're, they're a poor church. That, man, I look at that and say, why, why is he in that situation and not me? Why, why do I have the benefit of saving and, and not even worrying about my future at this point? Do you expect, <laughs> this is a good one, <laughs> do you expect your pastor to sacrifice financially in ways that you don't? If so, why? I know no one's going to admit it. My original question might get at, get at it. Have you ever offered your pastor a secondhand car or clothes? Or furniture? Why? Why didn't you buy a new one and give that to him? Like, 
I've done that, so I'll admit it. How should we protect pastors from serving under compulsion? You know, say a pastor is serving for 10 years. You know what? I'm not called anymore. I'm going to be honest. But we look at, like, what am I qualified to do? Sorry, Christian. You know, <laughs> seminary education, no, care, no one cares about that. My, my resume is not going to look good. I haven't learned the type, right management skill. I don't know. But are, we, are we setting people up for compulsion? What if they're 10 years, 15 years out from a retirement age for a Social Security, and they're not feeling it anymore? But man, just like any of us would do, sorry, I, I got to wait to retirement. I can't afford to leave. A lot of us would have left our jobs 10 years earlier if we could have. Is that the right place for a pastor to be? We want somebody serving begrudgingly and under compulsion. I don't have an answer for that. I think it's worth thinking about. <laughs> Do we expect something from pastors' wives? I have seen this over and over. I love the fact that Pam does not feel that pressure. <laughs> she is of the body like any other woman. But that, that's very common. I've seen that in lots of pastors we've been to. Or you're kind of like getting a twofer. We're going to pay your wage, and we expect you to run the children's ministry. Is that right? And how would we know Kenny set a number? So if I don't stop now, I'm going to. So let's start with at least the first two. I think those kind of go together. I've got my own thoughts. I've got the answer key up here, but uh, employment or calling. It's okay if we're just thinking out loud. Um, hey, what are, you, what are you thinking? Wait, wait for the mic. Not for a moment. Okay, so does that affect, um, how would we go about setting a number? I'll jump to the end. If, with that in mind, if it is both, is, does that help guide us in knowing how we would possibly approach this? Oh, so, so do the, yeah, well, the giving is after the sermon, so it might be based on how good it is. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Interesting. All right, any other thoughts? Oh, you're not ruling well today. <laughs> Bigger question, I guess, would be, is anything just a job or an actual vocational calling? Yeah. Right? Is there a Excellent. difference between the secular and the sacred calling? And, and are we setting up a false dilemma as, like, one is better than the other? That kind of makes sense? Absolutely. Like, what, what was Luther's famous quote? His, uh, something to the effect close. of, like, shoemaker, uh, barrel maker, all are... You know, doing what God has yeah, called to do, right? Yeah, it's the priesthood of all believers, right? One, yeah. one of those quotes was, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's excellent. I think that's, that's a, a principle that really helps us here, that your employment, our employment, each of ours, ought to be part of a vocation, of a calling. And it's, yes, it, it, is, it is doing well at work. It is being an honest worker. It is making money to, to give to the church and, and to gospel labors. But uh, one of the big things we learned from, from our Protestant heritage is, is that, you know, we, we're, you know, God is cultivating the garden. And we're, we're, we're part of that cultivation on earth, no matter what we do. And we want to do it well, as unto the Lord. That's excellent. Yeah, I think that helps us go a long way. All right, open up to either that question or any of the other questions you want to take a stab at.
So I've heard that uh, distinguishing double honor from regular single honor, so honor would be enough for a widow to survive, and then double honor might be twice that. So to point yep. G, you might take the average salary for a household in the area where the church is, where the elder is serving, and then you might double that as double honor. Yeah, yeah, it's very possible in First Timothy 5, he's talking about how much. <clears throat> Another po option is he's, he's saying, let's be doubly sure that our elders are taken care of as opposed to the widows. I, I think linguistically both are options, but that, that kind of starts getting to the brass tacks of getting to a number and thinking through it. So great, anyone else? <clears throat> Do you feel on the spot if that's a problem? I'm a little intimidated. So as far as question B, uh, I think the way that I interpret that is for the person who's giving their money, like it implies a value judgment. And so like things that are worth more to me that I value more, I don't hold on to my money with as tight of a fist. And so if a lot of the references you made to scripture, like first John chapter three, like if we have true love for God, these things won't be as uh, difficult of debates. Like we will want to give our money, the church will have more money than it needs to, to carry out its operating budget. So I, I, I think that's, um, that's how I interpret that and yeah. how I would think about this. Yeah, amen. I see a hand, two hands, ladies first. This might be a little bit of everything, but when you think about that period, how were they caring for widows and um, pastors? Wasn't in a paycheck system. I mean, they were bringing them food and mm -hmm. provide, making sure they were housed. It may be, it may have involved money, but maybe not. So this might relate to benefit packages and things, but if we care well for our pastor, we're probably um, providing other things or special blessings. Not that we shouldn't pay, I'm not arguing for payment, right. I'm just saying what are we including in that? Um, yeah, don't limit the double honor to just yeah, money. Yeah, you know, fair. maybe a week in a vacation home is that you would, yeah. on the beach would be uh, yeah. considered just a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. So often in the New Testament, uh, doctrines and practices are not well developed because uh, they are already existent in the church practice uh, that was brought down from Jewish Old Testament. And I think that is in part the case here. I find it intriguing that you don't quote any Old Testament passages. And there's a lot that the Old Testament talks about. Uh, the Levites who uh, were specially set apart mostly to serve as the pastors uh, they had their calling, they had work on the side, and yet they were able to enjoy special benefits that nobody else could, like they could 
partake partially in uh, eating the sacrifices that were being offered and that provide a lot of their sustenance. So I think that uh, a complete answer would need a more thorough that I can't provide uh, estimate of what the Old Testament used to say about Levites and their support. Yeah, well, and Paul does that for us, right? He says, do not those who serve or employed by the temple eat, you know, get their food from the temple. So I think we have Deuteronomy 25.4, do not muzzle an ox, but I agree. I think we could probably draw a lot of principles out of there. It's coming. Um, I was reading in my study Bible while you were talking about how, like, in Corinth at the time, there were a lot of, like, what we would call motivational-type speakers mm -hmm. that were being paid for money, right? So, like, a Rachel Hollis or a, you know, like, some yep. of these people. And, like, I am really interested in, like, different scams and stuff like that. <laughs> so, like, when you think about maybe they were more sensitive to being, like, scammed, and so he's sort of being sensitive to their... Like, if you came into a church where, like, like, if someone came from the LDS church where, like, you sit down every year and they look at your, they look at your yeah. paycheck and, like, you can't go to the temple unless you've paid exactly 10% of your gross income, that person might be more sensitive to tithing at first than someone who doesn't have that sort of been burned like that before. Yeah, you know, in one sense, it is a legitimate concern, right? Um you know, sometimes if I'm looking at an organization to give to, or maybe I'm thinking about someone I pass on the street who's panhandling, you know, you, you can go through those reasons not to give. And there are legitimate arguments there. But, I mean, it, at some sense, number one, if you, I think if you hire men of character, that's going to go a long way. You have a structure of accountability that helps a lot. At some point, it's a, it's a gift of faith, right? I mean, at, so, at some level... I have what I need, whatever, however I decide, hopefully being a cheerful giver, the rest is going somewhere. It's just a matter of where. So at some point, it's, I've, I've taken care of the heart issue that Paul talked about, right? I'm, that's, that's not mine, that's God's. Now I want to try to be very wise as a good steward of where to give that. But at some point, it is an act of faith. And so you want to, I think we just want to hopefully help grow people into that understanding, that heart motivation. Right, I get, I'm going to wrap up with some comments. You got one last? Yeah, just uh, I think that we have a, I, I don't want to say unique challenge, but a different challenge in this age in that we have access to all of these men who preach sermons that are wonderful and have extraordinary gifts. Yeah. And we, so t today, just as an example, I was uh, on Instagram. I saw a 30-second uh, clip of Tim Keller and was almost in tears. Right. I mean, the guy is just outstanding. But I think in terms of B, we need to understand that there are many men of, of modest gifts out there uh, who will faithfully deliver the gospel over the course of a career. And we need to, you know, not think of, uh, you know, here are our options out there and yep. we need to go find a Tim Keller or a Tim Posey. Like, there are men out there who uh, deserve to be well paid for, you know, delivering the gospel faithfully over the course of decades. I agree. If you only have time for... One summer in a week, I hope it's, you know, Spring Meadows website and not your podcast. <laughs> that should all be your extra. I'm guilty yeah. of that. All right, so here are my comments. Um, my two main driving things, how I would try to answer some of these, and I don't have some specific answers. There aren't right answers for some of these. 
The thing is, what is my attitude towards possessions in general, as, as Paul was saying? I think that's probably the heart of it is, um, I mean, any way that we would think that uh, a pastor would naturally sacrifice for the gospel ought to be something that I share in. I mean, my life should reflect, um, you know, the kind of house I live in, the car I drive, should reflect a lower income that I actually have. There's just no way around it. We are expected to give. I, I can't make that decision for you what it is, but uh, Piper has a great quote that our lives should look like Christ is more precious to us than our riches. Do your neighbors see that in how you spend your money and your time? That Christ is more precious? Your, your confidence in it, aren't in these riches and these 401ks that are around you? How do, how do we live that way? It's hard. All of our lives should be a conduit for the ministry. <laughs> your employment is a vocation. Your life is, you are in the ministry. Right? We have a, sp a unique calling here to spend it. The Lord commanded it in a, in a unique, there are things unique about this calling, but Paul is talking about that all through the Corinthians. You don't get to decide if you're an apostle, a prophet, a teacher. That's something that God decides. The Holy Spirit has determined how the body is going to be composed and where you fit in that. So you're, you're just looking for what God has called you to. You don't get to choose it. And then my other big one is just a pastor is an elder. Elder is an older brother. He's one of us. He's not clergy, right? This clergy lady. I, I guess the poverty of pastors came from Catholics having a vow of, of poverty for priests. I don't know. Um, but he's one of us. So again, it goes back to pastors should enjoy the same benefits I have to retirement, you know, Kids can go play club soccer. I don't know. Um, think about college. So whatever, however I, I answer that last question of where we get to a number is, I'm starting to, well, he's one of us. How do I treat one of us? At the same time, our pastor should not be shielded from a lot of the life struggles, right? You don't want your pastor to live in a bubble so he can't relate to the congregation. It's already a challenge because a lot of pastors never had real work, you know, working in the secular world. If that pastor hasn't done that, he better, he better be out learning and really listening to people and understand. So his sermon illustrations aren't all from his seminary days, right? It, it should be from real life. I hope you don't have any seminary illustrations today. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> They're good. They have their place. Um, right? We would want to be relatable. So if he takes a risk on a house, right, he's open to that risk. Makes financial decisions in the market. There's all sorts of things. And so my own, I understand, like a parsonage, I understand where that comes from, and there's probably a place for it. I think if you do have a young man enter a parsonage, there ought to be some plan of getting them, right? Maybe slowly buying that house over time, or, or I don't know. I don't know. I think we got to think about their retirement, in the, you know, down the road, like with all of us. So how would we start? I don't know, maybe an average salary in the church. And by that, I would say median, if you know what that means, Right? How much does our church make? Where's somewhere in the middle? Piper, sorry, I know he's not Presbyterian. He's influenced me a lot. We should neither keep our pastors poor nor make them rich. That should never happen. That's, that's a pretty good guide, right? Somewhere between the impoverished priest and the, you know, private jet-owning megachurch. Somewhere in there. Um, right? I think in our own denomination, we have to think about some, the cost of seminary. We require a seminary. So either that needs to be reflected in the salary or we need to pay off the seminary, right? And then go median, something like that. That's what I would vote for. But okay, those are just bits of wisdom, right? 
uh, the elders will kind of help decide. I'm sure the PCA has a process, whatever that is, to help decide. Um, we should all be mimicking Paul's passion and willingness to sacrifice. We are in this together. We are a body of Christ. We have a gospel mission. We have an outreach to a dying world, right? We want to build up each other, build up the saints. We are all in this. If we're not just hiring a man to come and do that for us, our conscience is clear, I can go play poker, right? <laughs> we are all in this together. And he's helping lead us and building up because the work of the ministry, right? Ephesians 4. They're building us up so that we can be part of the ministry. And then one last question. This might be a little... <laughs> how much do you value the preached word of God? Maybe that should be reflected in how much we pay. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Again, help, help us not to immediately defend ourselves and justify ourselves and, and shield um, what you might be saying to us. Help the spotlight of both the law and then the gospel be shine upon our hearts. Melt us by your grace. Help us to see our important role. You've called us into this body. You've given us gifts. Are we using those faithfully? How can we who are older in the faith help younger people, encourage them to know how to organize their time, how to identify their gifts, how to care about the local church? Help us not to just grow in doctrine and be puffed up in knowledge, Help us to want to use that uh, for your glory and for all that you've called the church to be. Again, we pray for Tim and Pam that they would be having a really sweet rest right now, both with uh, learning about the history of the church and with family. We pray they would come back refreshed. We pray for Christian and Michaela as they've come in, in this new venture, um, that you would establish them, uh, help us to show our love and our support to them. Help them start to figure this new life out um, and help all of us. Help the women's ministry that's so active. Be with each one. Be with so many in this body that never get observed, that are quietly plodding along faithfully. You see them, Lord. You see their faithfulness. May they feel supported, encouraged, and living out uh, your call in their lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.